Himalayas Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. If you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. In this week's episode, if you're looking for trouble, just look right in my face. That's Austin Butler as Elvis from the movie about the rock and roll icon, directed and co-written by Baz Luhrmann. The film scored eight nominations for this year's Academy Awards, which are just a few weeks away, including for Best Picture and Best Actor for Butler. I visited the director at his extravagant townhouse in New York's Gramercy neighborhood. It's filled with spiral staircases, gorgeous furniture, and a kitchen that's bigger than my first home. I've known Baz and his partner, Catherine Martin, who has three Elvis nominations herself for costume design, production design, and best picture producer for more than 20 years, dating all the way back to the making of Moulin Rouge. I've rarely spent time with anyone so filled with passion and creative energy. Baz and the Elvis team had recently returned from the film's May premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. I had moderated a screening of Elvis the night before with its stars Austin Butler and Tom Hanks. Baz had appeared at the convention of movie theater owners earlier that year, where he reminded thousands of exhibitors that there were lots of films, like his, that were not sequels, reboots, or spinoffs, telling them, man does not live on Batman alone. I reminded him of those remarks and how the box office odds were stacked against Elvis. The movie ended up performing surprisingly well. Then we discussed the movie itself and the challenge of recreating famous footage while also staying true to Baz's unique filmmaking style, one that you're no doubt familiar with if you've watched any of his other films, including Moulin Rouge, The Great Gatsby, or Romeo and Juliet. Here's our conversation. In terms of watching the film or talking to people after they've seen the film, your intention versus result, what has been the most gratifying? Let's leave the Presley family out of it for a moment. I think the film, of course, I want to draw people out into dark rooms of strangers and look up at a story and cry and laugh and be moved because I do believe human beings need to commune around story and not always be at home watching a streamer. But much more gratifying, to answer your question right now, is the debate, dialogue, and conversation going on around the film. So therefore, it's not just Elvis. It's about America to me. You have done a fair amount of research to make this movie. Some of it is into the life of Elvis, and some of it is about the musical influences of and the musical influences by Elvis. Mm. In that research, what surprised you the most? Not only the personal, but also the way that other musicians were influenced by him and the way he was influenced by other musicians. Well, John, we did a session last night and you you did very well, as you always do, did a very sort of strong Q&A, a Q&A that was very targeted. But you were also present when people like Yola, who plays Sister Rosetta Tharp, the godmother of rock and roll, articulated it so well. I thought she was so eloquent and right on... Spot on. She made it clear for me that the notion of appropriation is just kind of doing something going like, boom, I just came out of nowhere. I did it. Whereas the other journey is showing the DNA, the linear connection and the surprise. And I didn't just research academically. I mean, five years ago, I went down to Graceland. I was coming and going from Tennessee, Memphis for 18 months. One of the big revelations was when I finally tracked down an older African-American gent called Sam Bell, 
who was a childhood friend with that little gang of friends that's in the movie. Now, for example, that scene in the gospel tent when the preacher grabs the young kid and says, leave Elvis B, he's with the spirit. Sam Bell told me that story verbatim. That this was Elvis's altar call, as it's known, the Pentecostal church, yeah. that he has a he has a born-again moment. Yeah, he's born again and, and a spiritual moment. And by the way, you know, I mean, I knew Michael Jackson. We were working on a song. I worked with Prince twice. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about these different iconic musicians. Another great iconic musician said to me, you know, the thing about Elvis says, like, they all learnt their moves. They would practice their steps. But Elvis did it spontaneously. And what I learned from Sam Bell, he said, you know, the movement, I think Elvis had to get into a spiritual state to perform. Like he was really, because he's quite a shy person. But then on stage, he was like, had wings, you know. That that was his speaking in tongues, the yeah. way he danced. In yeah, a way. yeah. There was a musician named Jose James who did a cover album of Bill Withers songs. And yeah. he had this great line that I remember. And he said, if you don't make it your own, all you're doing is really expensive karaoke. Yeah. And you have an iconic person whose music and look and dance people know. So you have to approximate that look, but you don't want to imitate it because then you're yeah. doing really expensive karaoke. So at what point are you trying to focus on what looks right and what is new? Because if you get it wrong, it doesn't look like him, doesn't sound like him, people are yeah. going to tune out. So at what point do you get close enough that you can then make your own story oh, yeah. so people aren't distracted oh, by yeah. the dissimilarities? Great. Um, good question. Great question. Because unlike my other films, I was handed chunks of reality, meaning chunks of famous footage that with Austin and I and the whole team, we had to perfectly recreate. So let's say uh, the comeback special. Walking on the leather suit. Oh, since my baby left me. You know, the... My, Perfectly recreate, even down to the extras being identically matched to the ones in the special, because that famous. So that was a big slice. But then in my own way of storytelling, I worked in reverse. Because yes, we want to see, wow, my, isn't that incredible? Like when he does the show in Vegas, people go like, oh my gosh, it's so spot on. But we want to use that show in Vegas to do drama. So meanwhile... At the desk, the colonel's there signing a contract, and you're hearing, we've got a new song. I'm caught in a trap, I can't get out, because suspicious minds. So we're using it as drama. That isn't in the documentary. You know, what happens after the curtain comes down, that isn't in the documentary. So to get the, to reveal the, the human being, which is Austin's great achievement, I think, the humanity, you have to be able to give reference points that people can lock into and go, right, yep, I buy it, right? So that then you give Austin the space not to do an impersonation, but to do an interpretation, to reveal the soul. So how do you work away from reference? Because you have reference of what yeah. the Las Vegas stage looked like, what the costume mm -hmm. was that he, he wore, where he's performing. The reference helps everybody, including the actor, get in that place. Yep. But how do you make sure that reference doesn't dictate story? Because, yeah, I mean, ultimately, that is answered by how much I shot and left on the cutting room floor and, and how much I wrote and wanted to put in, but I didn't. Because every choice, like people often ask me, so how did you choose the Elvis songs, given there are so many? They're not my particularly... My favorites, a lot of my favorites are hidden gems. They're the songs that are temples 
in the telling of the narrative. And we have a narrative that isn't just he was born, became a star, and fell. It's really a narrative between two men, a narrative about America. I referenced before uh, Puccini's La Boheme, yeah. and I think you can make the argument that Elvis's malady wasn't consumption, it was Tom Parker, in a way. Yeah. That that's what was kind of eating him. And there's other ways to look at La Boheme and Elvis and Puccini and Elvis. And there's also, uh, I think, similarities between Soliari and, and Mozart in Amadeus. Absolutely. When you're thinking about the operatic nature of the relationship between Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis, where does it line up with Puccini or other great operas? I mean, I don't say it because honestly, in the marketing world, people would be like, listen, don't go talking about opera, it scares people. But honestly, Elvis Presley, Colonel Tom Parker's relationship, the good, the bad, the ugly, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, is the perfect three-act tragic American opera. I mean, it is the true... I mean, if you're a dramatist, if, if Shakespeare was around, you go, hey, now that's something I can sink my teeth into and make a larger point about America and the human condition. Is that why you wanted to make the movie? Yes, that's why. I, I mean, you know you know me, John. You know me a long time. I've, I rarely make movies. It's not like I'm looking for a job. You know, like when I decide to make something... I find something that's going to help me personally, but most importantly, I think it's going to be useful putting out there. And lots of biopics, people knock on the door and say, would you? And I'm like, love to, but. But the Elvis of it was always to me, it's not about my own personal taste or my own personal feelings. It's about what will serve a larger idea that I feel should be put out there in my very particular and, you know, too much confetti and too many flitter drops. But but in my own very particular, sure, make it entertaining. Sure, have great music. Sure, have laughter. Sure, be silly. Sure, be serious. Sure, be moving. But there is a large underlying gesture in the film. Coming up, more of my conversation with Australian filmmaker Baz Luhrmann about Elvis. Welcome back to Retake. I'm John Horn. Let's get back now to the rest of my interview with Baz Luhrmann. There are filmmakers who love actors who come in more or less as an empty vessel, and the filmmakers <laughs> can make him, her, or them the character they want them to be. Austin did not appear to arrive as an empty vessel. No. And was that part of why you were attracted to casting him? Yes. I mean, I mean, I really thought, I won't make the film if I can't find someone to play Elvis. And I really thought the chances were slim. So a lot of talented actors, they did a lot of great things. But the whole journey of Austin from the very first video that I got, which was just not an audition, it was a young man wrapped in a bathrobe, singing Unchained Melody, crying up to the sky. And I later find out what that was, that Austin had lost his mother the same year as Elvis and had a nightmare and he put it on tape. You know, yes, you get your call from Denzel Washington, who I don't know, saying, you're about to experience a work ethic like you've never seen. But when he came in, he was already down Elvis Road. And to be honest with you, John, I've never seen... He'd lived at Elvis for two years, not sort of in a method acting way, but in a kind of fusing his spirit 
with the spirit of Elvis Way, and I've never really known anyone. I've never known Austin not. I mean, he do, he is Austin off the set, and it dials up and dials down, but I've only ever known him through the prism of Elvis. To quote another filmmaker or another artist outside of Jose James, and I might, I don't think I've ever mentioned this quote by Danny Boyle when he was making a movie yeah. called 127 Hours, which is about Aaron Ralston, the hiker who got his arm cut. Yeah. Aaron was around the set and would say, Danny, the car didn't turn in left, the parking yeah. lot turned in right. And Danny finally told him, just because something isn't factual doesn't mean it isn't truthful. Yeah. And we were making a biography, you are going to invent certain things, yeah. but they're in pursuit of a truth. Mm. And you have that as your agenda, but you also have in the wings Priscilla Presley, who, yeah. not that you need her blessing, but it's certainly going to help. So when you're thinking about the balance between what was factual and what is truthful and what you're going to have to invent versus making sure that the estate doesn't think you've created out of whole cloth things that didn't happen, where did you? how did you walk that line? Well, yeah, I mean... The estate is a whole other thing because it's actually not something that's controlled by any members of the family. But even as a storyteller and, and, as a, and, and with reasonable decency, but with true interest, my first step was to reach out to Priscilla, Riley, um, Lisa Marie, and I had engagement with them at first. But the pandemic estranged us. I was locked in Queensland for two years and I couldn't get to them. There was no, look, check off on the script or, you know, I got initial information, but then I was really on my own. And so making the film, it was coming out of intense research. As you say, like, although I've compressed time and made some adjustments, there's an actual historical reference for every single thing in the movie. Elvis had a very particular, iconic, and hugely influential style. Yeah. Your partner in filmmaking crime, Catherine Martin, who yeah. is downstairs having Commit breakfast right committing now. Committing more crimes. Has her own sense of style. She is your producer, production designer, and costume designer. So at what point does CM, as Catherine is mm. known, get to have her own style that is influenced by, but her interpretation of, Elvis's style, because again, going back to the karaoke line, if she's just copying, it's very expensive yeah. karaoke. How does CM make her look, her design, her own that borrows so much from Elvis rather than copying it? Well, there's a very big difference between the film. Like CM actually has her own aesthetic. She has carpets and wallpapers and her own interior design look. It's very different from the films. In the films, I have to come to the table with my terrible scribbles my tear sheets, my drawings, and all of that, which she says, oh, darling, they're lovely drawings, but actually they're horrible. No one can read them, only her. But I do the, and I set it up very early on. I do a sort of visual language collage, and then I do a written word collage, and then I do a musical structural collage. And I start there. And then very quickly I start collaborating with my nearest and dearest, and that is CM, but other collaborators who you know as well. And I start doing that work. Now, I'm a research junkie like I would research it all my life and live it and not do it and Sam comes on that road with me a little later in the process she doesn't start out there because I have to sort of bring the gesture in once we do that then we build very 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 academically and then when we go there and this is where your point is right so for example if we're held if we're doing the jumpsuit in Vegas 
dead accurate. It's just got to be dead accurate. Let's take the let's take the very famous leather suit in the comeback special. We know it was behind me the other day, the real one in an interview. We know intimately what it is. Angie and archives in Graceland. I had an office there. But it's not just about reproducing exactly that costume because that costume didn't have to... Elvis performed in it a few times. Actually, it was made of horse leather. He sweated so much I had to cut him out of it, right? But we had to do it over and over and over again. Plus, Austin isn't exactly the same as Elvis, so we had to make adjustments there. But, but the real stuff you're talking about is what's it like when Elvis and Priscilla are hanging out in the hospital? Like, who's wearing what? There's no camera on then. When Priscilla leaves Elvis and they have an argument and he collapses down the bottom of the stairs and she's getting in a car, what are they wearing then? Because there's no reference there. And from that, you really that's where, between Sim and I, there's a real dialogue about character and humanity, you know? Like, sure, we could dress him up looking great, but you know what? He's just thrown his robe on. She's decided to go. She's probably dressing in a way in which she's saying, I've got to be strong. I've got to be strong. I've got to show I'm my own woman. I'm not, I'm not the Priscilla that's going to have you do my hair and my eyes anymore, Elvis. So those choices are about drama. We're in service to the story always. People might come into this movie thinking of Elvis as overweight, as drug-addled, as, you know, dying on the toilet, that mm. this kind of cartoonish image mm -hmm. of a musician who lost it. If your movie's successful, how will they have that notion challenged, both in his personal life and in his musical legacy? I mean, I like the idea that they're going in with all sorts of... Look, to a certain generation, he's a Halloween costume and he's in Lilo and Stitch, and to my son, daughter, he's in a video game, you know? To another generation, oh, he was iconic, but he's kind of like untouchable. And I think the change, I think, I, I don't know if I can guarantee it, but the change I've observed in audiences who have seen it have come with that attitude. It's just the sheer humanity of the man. They're shocked by his spirituality. Because above and beyond everything else, those early days in the Pentecostal tens, the love of gospel... I mean, he'd do two shows a night towards the end and still be up with the sweet inspirations, one of whom had a child called Whitney Houston and sing gospel till the sun came up, you know? Gospel was his safe place. So I think he was deeply spiritual. You came to the movie theater owners convention in Las Vegas and showed some footage to exhibitors and you said at the time, man cannot live on Batman alone or words <laughs> to that effect. Great film, I really enjoyed the last Batman. Loved it. Uh, last weekend at the box office in North America, the total gross was a little more than $200 million. Top Gun Maverick and Jurassic World Dominion accounted for more than 90% of all tickets sold, meaning the rich are getting richer, and there's not even a middle class anymore, no. then it's poor. People are going to the theaters, but only for big movies, which puts Elvis in an unusual position. Yes. We Obviously, it's a movie that needs to be seen in a theater, but that's not what people are doing right now. So in terms of not only your movie, but yeah. also the overall health of the yeah. theatrical experience, where are you optimistic and where are you pessimistic? We are. You're right. By the way, I thank what Tom's done with Top Gun and the Jurassic because the first step has been to actually draw those audiences who have not been going out to see movies out into the theater. 
and it's showing us they want to come out to the theater. I never lost hope that they wanted to come out to the theater. Now, we are carrying extra weight because we are not a franchise. We are not a hip, hap, we're not Stranger Things, you know. There's no sequel to Elvis, right? We are a standalone motion picture and we are dealing with an icon who is no longer particularly relevant. And yet, I think it is Elvis the story, the story we tell, is a joining point for generations. And what I'm hopeful for is that the way I've opened the doors by having not only Austin sing classic Elvis, he sings all the early Elvis, but hearing um, the big Elvis, but also I've got all sorts of guest artists, everyone from Eminem to Doja Cat doing what I would say opening doors to not only what it was, but what it felt like. You know, the excitement. That's why Gary Clark Jr. starts shredding guitar 70s style when, it, when Austin's singing Baby Let's Play House. Come back, baby, come. Come back, baby, I want to play The music of Let's Play House is it's great, but it's charm. Whereas what it felt like was electricity. And Clark Jr. gives us electricity. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot riding on. Will a broader audience come out to see a non-franchise film? Um, but that's, I see that kind of as my responsibility. I've always had a bit of a mission in front of me. Musicals. Who wants to see a musical? Baz, I could speak with you for hours. Thanks again. Thanks, man. Always great to talk. Thanks for listening to Retake. I'm John Horn. We'll see you again next week. And for those of you in L.A., mark your calendars for Film Week's annual Oscar preview on March 5th at the Orpheum Theater. You can get tickets for it at elias.com slash events. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.